Restaurant Unstoppable episode 548 with Chef Jeffrey Fournier. And you maybe don't realize this until you're 35, you know, and you've been doing it since you're like 18 or something. But you get to the point where you have to make it worth it to be still in it by getting the best things out of it. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Cash flow is something every small business is worried about, and it's hard to know at any given moment how you're doing. And worse, it's virtually impossible to predict the future. Until now, welcome to CashflowTool.com, the ultimate companion for any small business using QuickBooks. CashflowTool.com gives you instant visibility on any device anywhere of your cash flow, and it also alerts for unexpected expenses. On top of all this, it analyzes your past finances and projects how much money your company will have tomorrow, next week, and next month. Go to www.cashflowtool.com slash unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and receive pro features at the essential features price. Introducing Ethics Suite, the first and only misconduct, theft, and fraud reporting platform exclusively for the restaurant industry. Check out restaurantethics.com to see how restaurant employees can report any concerns anonymously, easily, and securely from any device with internet connection. However, if you're an owner or manager, you should check out ethicssuite.com slash restaurantunstoppable for more information on how you can monitor and respond to these reports and stay informed about issues that could affect your business and your reputation one more time that's ethicssuite.com slash restaurants unstoppable with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest jeffrey fournier jeffrey are you feeling unstoppable today Absolutely. Yes, that's what I like to hear. So hailing from Massachusetts, Jeffrey Fournier got his start in the restaurant industry working in Los Angeles, California. Fournier would return to Massachusetts where he would work or spend eight years working under Lydia Shire in her Boston restaurants before he took the role of executive chef for the Metropolitan Club. And in 2007, Fournier opened his independent restaurant, his first independent restaurant, 51 Lincoln in Newton, Massachusetts, where he got multiple best chef nods. Fournier's second location Wabin Kitchen came in 2013 and in 2015 in search for a better quality of life. Fournier moved his family to Jackson, New Hampshire, where he opened the Thompson House Eatery. Obviously, we're just scraping the surface. I can't wait to dive into who you are, what you're all about, and how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. Let's do this. I would say right off, uh, one of the things that I say a good amount is fine is not good enough. When a cook or a server, I ask, you know, how's the table going or how are we doing on something we're making? Uh, and people say, fine. I just say, fine is not good enough. Like, that's, that's, not, where, that's not what we're working for. So, Chef, I got to ask, what is good enough? Uh, the main answer to that is the, the, if you are putting 100% of your effort and your skill level uh, to bear in any particular task. That's really the goal, nice. you know, because not everyone, not everyone has the same skill set, and not everyone has the same proficiency at, in certain things. Uh, and we all have our talents and things that we do well and things we need to work on. Beautiful. 
Love it. Great way to get this thing started. So after doing a little research, it looks like for you, it all got started in California. What brought you out there? When, when did you know you were going to commit your life to this? It, it took a while, actually. In the first few years, I was really focused on being a painter and a writer and a musician. And, uh, and I, I was really a, an abstract painter all through um, you know, my kind of middle school and high school life and saw myself as moving to New York or L.A. and becoming a, f- a famous painter and all that. And I, I found cooking um, kind of by accident. And I just realized that I was good at it when I was at um, Rock and Wagner in L.A. was my first job there. And I was totally over my head, young, you know, young kid from Massachusetts, like trying to figure out what fine dining was about. And I had never eaten in a place like that. Um, you know, so in the end of the day, I started to bring my creative output to food after I figured it out. But it took me a few years to really see that it could be an outlet for the creative impulse. Was there a moment where somebody recognized you for your ability? Like what, what helped you find it? I think as I developed my skills and liked the uh, kind of adventure of, of being in the rush and that kind of frenetic, uh, feeling and of activity and something was happening and happening and being part of something bigger than just myself being part of a team. Okay. Uh, that helped me to kind of relax into looking at it, um, from the perspective of, you know, could this be satisfying? You know, could I accomplish something great? I always wanted to do something that was, I don't know, bigger than my upbringing, I guess. Yeah. So, so ultimately it was satisfying, right? Because you, you decided to stick with it. So what did you find so satisfying, satisfying about the experience of working? Uh, I think that the direct feedback of when, when I would, when I would come up with a dish or, or I cook something well and people's reactions to it, it's very similar to someone looking at a painting and having a positive reaction or, um, someone liking a song or, or any, anything like that where you're getting direct feedback. Okay. Like instant gratification of. Yeah, a little bit. And, um, I somehow have always been attracted to a lot of things though, that are, that are impermanent, that, you know, you do, you put all this effort into something, cook something for four hours and, and then a guest eats it and it's gone in three minutes. Yeah. But ultimately, you know? like you said, it's that instant gratification of the, the smiles on the faces and the feedback. It's, exactly. It's addicting. And yeah. And I, you know, my, uh, um, my French Canadian grandmother was really, uh, focused on, really taking care of people and making fe- people feel really good and cooking and, and getting that kind of good feeling of making sure that uh, people are comfortable and well taken care of. Beautiful. And so I think that that's kind of part of it too, is that the hospitality piece, which, you know, a lot of chefs are really focused on and especially young chefs. And I, I would put myself in the, in this camp, like it's all about the chef and and his or her creative output. And it's not so much about the guest. And I think being a little older, wiser chef at this point, it's the whole package and it's the theater of the restaurant and, 
uh, building the team to have each member of the team express what they would like to express uh, and feel part of something. You know, there's a, there's a lot more that goes into it. When did it you figure than, that out, that it's more than just the chef, but it's about the team? And the chef can't do it without the team. Well, I think that there is a time period when, um, probably when I was leaving the Metropolitan Club and I was getting ready to find investors and and what open what ended up being 51 Lincoln and doing my first restaurant myself. I went through a lot of different spaces trying to, you know, find the right kind of package, the right investors, um, and all of that. And in that time period, it really was like, I really felt like it was just about me and my creative output and nothing else mattered, you know? And there were plenty of, of my staff that followed me because I, I was kind of leading the charge and in Boston at the time, there were there were mu- much less. Uh, there there were fewer restaurants, and there were certainly fewer restaurants that were doing, you know, whole animals and charcuterie and all the things that I was really into then. Um, you know, so I was a little bit of a poster boy for yeah the that's- pigs and stuff. You know, before. Uh, tattoos were in, you know, and you had to have a knife tattooed on your arm and all that stuff. And, uh, so I made it through without having any, uh, knife and beat tattoos all over me or whatever. Not that I'm against it, but it just, it's a little bit of, uh, you open any magazine right now and that's pretty much what you see. I hear you. So I think coming out of this time period where like, I once did this thing called, it was like a celebrity chef series at, uh, and it was like the globe put it on. It was at a, uh, part of, I think it was maybe part of the Boston food and wine festival or whatever at the Boston Harbor. And I remember standing under a sign that said celebrity chef, Jeff Fournier. (laughs) And I was like, all right, well, is that where, why I'm doing this? Or is that who I am? Uh, and it really that resonated with me a little bit, and uh, and at that time period, I was winning different awards from different magazines and being recognized, and that was great. And it felt made me feel good. But there's a little bit of a cycle with that stuff in the press about, oh, can I just do I need to get that next media hit so I feel good about myself and what I'm doing? And I kind of stepped back from all of that, you know. Um, I was almost on the first season of Top Chef. I was on the phone with the producers back then when I was at the Met, and we, you know, I could have been a contestant. I, I w- wasn't well known enough to be a judge, and then I've been offered kind of to be on other kind of reality TV show stuff, and I just said, I'm not doing any of that. I just want to cook. I want to take care of people and I want to be creative in my kitchen. So what happened? Uh, I mean, I'm right there with you. You, you said something that kind of um, resonated with me, this idea of getting the next uh, nod, like the next piece of uh, attention from a, a media outlet. And we get to the point where that, it almost it almost becomes addicting, right? Because like mm-hmm. it's that like little surge of adrenaline, that surge of like I'm being recognized, and we like being recognized for our work, right? And then that becomes the goal to get more attention, but that's not what it's all about, right? So what right. happened for you to realize that that's not what it's all about? What get, got you off that that horrible track that we really don't want to get trapped into to where you are now? 
it just wasn't making me any happier. Mm. And having also come from a place where um, I was making more money than I had made in my life, and my partner at the time was making also a lot of money. She she was a lawyer, and it just it just became like like buying the next thing. It's like that kind of American, like bigger, better, more kind of idea that you're going to, you're going to be happy when I do this or when this happens, I'll be happy. And you know, the restaurant business is really hard on you, you know, from hours and, um, and wear and tear on your body. And you maybe don't realize this until you're 35, you know, and you've been doing it, you know, since you're like 18 or something, but you get to the point where you, you have to make it worth it to be still in it by getting the best things out of it Mm. and not, um, and not just kind of going through the motions of what other people think. What are the best things out of it? The best things are, uh, the satisfaction of doing a hard, good, hard day's work, uh, having a team around you that really understands, what you're trying to accomplish and everyone's pulling in the same direction. Um, you know, we have, we've had events here at, uh, Thompson house that, you know, the whole team is almost in tears by the end because they have never been a part of something that is so special. And when the guests are, are leaving, our farm dinner where we cooked for 72 people out in the field, um, just with great chefs from, from, uh, New York and people, every person when they were leaving said that it was magical mm. the magical was like the word and, and bringing all these pieces together to have this experience that everyone that's taking part of it, whether they're working or, or as a guest, are walking away with something that they're never going to forget. Man, I've loved the conversation up to this point, but I feel like we got to rewind a little bit because we skipped over all of your experience with Lydia, right? Uh, Lydia Shire. And also, um, the, the, the couple years you did at the Metropolitan as the executive chef. So, uh, I mean, I guess I'll pass it back to you. Uh, is it worth mentioning your time in California? Do you want to start there? Do you want to maybe, I think I can do a, a short little bit about California. Yeah, yeah. and I want to um, make sure we leave plenty of time coming back to where you are now, uh, 2007, or back to that point where we just left off, and I want to unfold all that. But let's try to get some nuggets from your, your come up with some of the, the mentors you had, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, California was a little bit of not necessarily having – I felt like I knew everything. How old were you when you got out there? I was I was in my early twenties. This was like I was, I was about twenty or twenty one. What year were you looking at? Uh, I think it, I moved out about ninety one. Okay, cool. And <clears throat> you know, so I've been kind of searching around and kind of figuring out how I was going to be a, a painter, really, okay. at the end of the day. And I'd been in the National Guard, uh, so I could pay for uh, uh, mass. Army National Guard would pay for state Education. school. Yep. So uh, I did that for a few years. And then uh, I, when I was moving to California, I, I stopped doing that. Uh, but it gave me a really strong basis of, um, which I didn't know this yet, but the whole brigade system mm. in the kitchen and the hierarchy and the discipline that um, 
you know, I was kind of grew up in a maybe not so disciplined household. So I wanted to really bring that for myself and be, and I was very ambitious. Um, I knew I wanted to do something, but I didn't know, I didn't know where I was going to have my impact. And moving to LA was a, it was a way of kickstarting my life, I guess, as a young person, just saying, I'm just going to go do this. You know, I'd been on like one plane ride before that <clears throat> to go to basic training. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that it just was, I'm going to go do this big shocking thing for my life compared to coming from small town Amesbury, Massachusetts. You oh, know? you're from Amesbury? I'm from East Kingston, like right over the, the, the border. Yeah, there. So yeah, cool. totally. Uh, so... <clears throat> One, real quick, real quick. This is something I'm just curious about. What exactly did the brigade system teach you? What was it about that system that had an impact on you? How, how did it make it, you better? I think what the brigade does is gives people uh, structure in a way that the expectations of who you should be gaining information and knowledge from, there's always someone kind of that's the next person, especially in a bigger kitchen where you have, you know, executive chef, a chef de cuisine, a couple sous chefs, maybe a saucier or something, which most restaurants can't afford to have all that structure nowadays, but you can have um, much more kind of interaction and responsibility and flow of tasks Um, that is really good when you're a younger person and you're trying to see how you're supposed to behave and what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to set up and break Mm -hmm. down and, you know, all that stuff. And, um, you know, frankly, when I, when I was at my first, you know, I talked about rock and Wagner, I was not there very long because it was so over my head and I just didn't have the training. And, um, there were a couple of chefs there that weren't super welcoming to someone that uh, needed to be taught. And it was in the beginning of, I think, chefs coming out of the Culinary Institute of America or students coming out and graduating from there. Maybe a little chip on the shoulder. And just being really aggressive and thinking that the old school French way of yelling and pushing people around physically was was still okay back then. If you like put your hand on anybody <laughs> these days, it would be a, it no, would yeah. not, it's not okay. <laughs> yeah. And it shouldn't have been okay then, but it was, but it was, and that was an environment that I was in sometimes. And, um, <clears throat> so LA for me was a like experimental time of, of trying to figure out how, you know, how I could get into food and find my spot. And I ended up being in this place, Cafe Montana, which is in Santa, uh, in Santa Monica on Montana Avenue. And had been there for, I don't know, 15 or 18 years before I started. And the chef, um, uh, his first name was Jimmy. And he had been there a long time and was sort of not super enthusiastic. So I came into the sous chef role managing, you know, basically a, a small part of the kitchen and doing a lot of pasta work and things like that. And I was there for over three years and I just got to play and there was no one telling me I I can't do this. I can't do that. And there are a lot of celebrities there. I cooked for the edge and Selma Hayek and, and, Arnold Schwarzenegger, like they all came in all the time and I was really starstruck, uh, you know, coming from small town. And, uh, 
but that allowed me to experiment because no one cared as long as it was like great vegetables and whatever I was doing, people seemed to be into. Okay. So that was kind of the first time where I was kind of getting direct feedback and it also from pretty famous people, which for me was kind of like this kind of big deal. Uh, Like again, just coming from a small town and. So eventually you made it back to the, the East coast. What made you come back? Uh, well, at the time, I um, I was um, dating my, my first wife, and we were trying to decide whether we were going to, like, move back to the Boston area, or um, and she wanted to go to law school, so we ended up going, uh, she ended up going to Northeastern, and, you know, that was just our choice to go back to Boston, and before... You're still young at this point when you came back. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was in LA for a total of about five years. Okay. So yeah, so I was about 25 ish, 25, 26. And, you know, from my perspective, I was like, all right, well, if I'm going to move back to Boston, you know, I'm going to start doing research on all the restaurants that I should work at. Okay. Smart. And I, I got this book, um, called becoming a chef by uh, this guy, Andrew Jornenberg, uh, and he has a... F- Past guest on the show. <laughs> oh, great. Awesome. And his wife. And Karen. Karen Page is her... Yep, well, Karen, yeah, Karen. Yep. So, so they wrote this book, Becoming a Chef, and I, I think that that was their first book. And, yes, I think and, that's one that put them on the map. And from sure. my perspective, you know, you know, I read this book like three times through, and there's all these stories about Lydia and... Um, all these different Boston chefs and that had roots in Boston. And there was some other East coast, uh, like Norman Van Aken, like from Florida and things like that. But it just really impressed me the lineage of the chefs and who worked for who. And there were like charts in there of that and, and kind of the whole Boston restaurant scene. It's all connected. And that's one of the things I was just talking to, uh, Kate, your business partner about before she, or your, your wife, uh, and business partner before she walked out, uh, the, the interconnection of just how everybody is just so connected and the people who rise to the top in this industry, just, they all know each other. They all help each other out. And it's those who collaborate and work with each other that get ahead. And it's amazing to see that web of connections. It's really fascinating. Sorry, keep going. No, it's great. So, so I decide that I'm going to go and try to trail for Lydia and I meet with, uh, at the time, uh, Susan Regis was the chef de cuisine at Biba. And uh, Daniele Baliani was the chef de cuisine at Pignoli. And um, it just was, it was a time period where I think those restaurants were like the top of the Boston scene at the time. You had Gordon Hammersley at Hammersley's. And you had Jody Adams. I'm not sure if Real, Rialto maybe yeah, it was open at that time in Cambridge. Um, so there's, there was a real small group of chefs that are really well known. Todd English was doing all his crazy stuff. And so I trailed at a bunch of places and, uh, ended up taking a job at Pignoli. Okay. And I remember starting, you know, I, I came into town like, did a couple stages and then was like asked to start working like maybe seven days after I came back from LA and I had driven 
from LA to Boston and a I big did that drive recently. <laughs> a big. <laughs> How many days did you do it in? Uh, I did it in like six or seven. That's not too bad. We took a took a stop at uh, Copper Mountain. I have a cousin um, there that teaches skiing and sailing okay. and stuff in Colorado, and uh, you know, so I got back, and Daniele just really impressed me, and um, at that point, I hadn't think I even met Lydia until like the next week or something. But I knew that um, Daniele was uh, the sous chef at Le Cirque under Daniel Belud. And I was, you know, totally into the, just the whole idea yes. of that. And so real quick, uh, this is something I say, especially today when I talk to people about who, who, you know, want to eventually own their own place and they, they're asking me how they should do it. Or like, you know, when I have advice for them, I say research the industry and study people and find out who you want to go work for. Uh, you're only going to be as good as the people you surround yourself with. So really be selective and try to get with the best. If you can't get on team, the, the number one team, go for the number two team and like, and work that way uh, back. But you said something that really resonated with me. You said you, you studied and you researched the people you want to go to work for. So what were you looking for? What was the thing that really was most important to you in this time? And how did you decide? Uh, I think aggression, <laughs> like an aggressive stance of being excellent, mm. like, like charging and moving towards excellence in a way that puts other people on their heels. I like it. You know, like, and that's for me. Why is that so important? Cause I want to be the best, you mm. know, I just do. I, and, and even if we're, we're talking about military stuff, like if, if I was, if I had stayed in the army, I definitely would have wanted to be in green beret or army ranger, you know, or whatever. Like, and if I was going to, you know, tennis with tennis was my high school sport, you know, I would want to, to win and achieve. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like you're put here on the planet for a certain amount of time and, you know, I'm a, le a little less like this now because I'm kind of relaxed into myself. But when I was younger, it's like, all right, what am I going to do? What are people going to say about what I contributed? Mm, I like it. So real, I just want to try to – you started talking about getting involved with Lydia Shire's restaurants. Uh, was it Pig Pignolia? Pignolia was the, was the first restaurant I worked for. And um, that was probably hands down the best food – I've experienced consistently on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I was there for a little more than a year and a half or so. Um, it just was, we did menus that were based on the city states of Italy and different like kind of tasting menu formats, things I had never seen, um, traditions from this Italian food traditions of like, all right, so Rome, its colors are red because of tomatoes and mm. you know or milan like their their kind of colors or their flags and all that are are, are yellow because of saffron like oh, that's cool. I didn't like know that. there's a lot of food related things um that go into how they the decorate yeah. their city yeah and these cities you know were coming up with their own cuisines and fighting with each other and then not and then trading with each other and, and identifying like, over their cuisines yeah. exactly so that was the kind of play that's what happened there for me was seeing all these different traditions and food um and i used them and exploited them um but also put in my own my own parts so 
ultimately this food is the byproduct of the people that are creating it, right? So what was it about these people, the habits, the disciplines, the things that you learned that were that enabled them that to produce food like this? Like really dive into the culture and the people that made this outcome possible. Well, that's the thing is that um, Daniele as a leader um, really was pushing menus that I thought were just really, really cool and his uh, standards were really, really high. Okay, let's dive into that. Like, how do you keep those high standards? How did he keep those high standards? Um, unfortunately, by yelling a lot okay. sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that, like I was saying, it was kind of the end of the time where, where like yelling and that aggressive kind of stuff was okay. Um, but we had a team that um, in the kitchen, there's like, about six, six or seven people that were the core team there, they were all super, super talented. And, and it's rare that you get that much talent in one room. And it's really hard even now because it's even harder now because what ends up happening is that the talent base gets diluted in too many restaurants. Because the more restaurants there are, there's only so many people that are, um, you know, a certain degree of talent in any particular area mm-hmm. is the way I kind of look at it. And we had, we're very fortunate to have six or seven people that were willing to just kill themselves and go after it. And, and we're also good. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely an environment of, we're going to go out and party after work <laughs> and go to an after hour club where you have to like knock on a door and, someone's going to pull a little hatch and you have to give a password to get in. And then there's a bunch of Boston chefs sitting in there like drinking beers in East Boston and eating arepas and a couple little old ladies cooking stuff for us. Like it was pretty crazy environment and then maybe not go to sleep or go back to the restaurant and catch an hour or two under a table in the private dining room and then start prepping again. Jeez. It's not sustainable. How'd you do it? I did it for years. <laughs> I did it for years. Part, like just hanging out because blowing off steam when you're so like intensely into something, um, it's, you want to kind of relive it a little bit with your people that mm-hmm. you're working with. And then, you know, and it just ends up kind of going into late, late in the, early in the morning, I guess. So just to reemphasize the, the, the variable that you identified and able being able to really maintain that level of standard, uh, full first, you mentioned that he, he would yell, which isn't what we want to replicate, but also having that, the, the layers of talented people, not just having one or two people at the top that have the skill and then the minions underneath them, but like the, the talent went for like, five or six layers deep. Uh, how do you get to that point where you think you have five or six layers deep? And I don't want to spend too much time here because we've got to leave time for the rest of your career. But Well, it's just, uh, I think in the end of the day, it's, uh, it's development and it's having, uh, having an environment where people want to improve and they want to learn and they want to strive. And there was a lot of competition between there are a lot of a type personalities yeah. in the room. So when you have people that are in that kind of mode, they're going to all push themselves mm. and then it's going to, and then you can see the outcome 
when you have this really positive outcome from that and, and the guests are really excited about it and they're busy and you know, it's just, it all kind of works together. Yeah. So you spent eight years with, uh, Lydia Shire's restaurants. What was one more big lesson and we'll move on to, uh, the metropolitan and then ultimately what you learned opening your first two restaurants. So what, what my takeaway from Lydia is that hospitality, like big hospitality, she had such a big presence. Um, she would walk around the dining room and people just respected her, you know, and you have to kind of go back and look at what she accomplished with Biba. Biba was, um, I probably opened mid eighties, I guess. Um, and was one of the only restaurants that had an awful menu in the center of it like outlined with this like rectangle of ink (laughs) and it was like kidneys and all this stuff. And no one was doing that at all. And she became known for it. And I believe that she was the first, if not one of the first um, executive chefs of a major hotel. She was at the Beverly Hills hotel in in LA. And so when you, when you think of, uh, being a woman chef at that time period in, you know, the like early eighties, it really wasn't a friendly environment for, no. for women. Mm-hmm. And, um, and after having worked for a woman for so long, I've had tons of really talented, uh, women in my kitchens and, um, run, be chef de cuisine and sous chef and like really be responsible for con- helping to continue that vision or my vision to the plate all the time. So I learned hospitality from Lydia, um, the, the, the sense of creating something bigger than yourself. Is that what you were getting at with the awful, something bigger than yourself or doing, taking a risk to be, yeah, like going out there and doing it well. And then people recognizing that you're doing this because it's you and it's your food, you know, and which, you know, right now in food, there's a lot of, formulas that are are working you know in with some success you know where you have these fine dining menus where there's like a little uh crescent of a push of a of a puree and then you're just like lining up all these things um they're all beautiful ingredients but that are all kind of in a line and everything starts to look the same and it's probably all really tasty you know but how do you find your own food and how do you get away from the aesthetic, just the aesthetic part Doing of what's it? expected from you. Exactly. Yeah. Like how do you just cook from the heart and I wouldn't say just put it on the plate, but it, it gets to the point where it's like, it's, it's almost a matter of well, how much effort am I going to put to, um, put gold leaf on a beat? Um, <laughs> you know, well, or whatever. So I just finished reading, uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Uh, and in that book, you know, what it sounds like you're saying, I mean, obviously we need to give a lot of fucks to be successful in this industry, right? We can't yeah. just not give a fuck, but it's a matter of giving a fuck about the right things. And it sounds like what Lydia had was the ability to give an F. I don't need to keep on saying the fuck, I guess, but giving an F about, uh, th- what the food was communicating, right? That this is food, this is sustenance, even though it's awful, you know, like we can make it into something that's delicious and amazing. Uh, and it, it speaks for itself. I don't need to make it look any prettier than what it and is. And people just need to recognize what, 
a chef is being successful when he or she can translate what's coming from their head into their staff and onto the plate in a way that the guests, all, all the guests understand what you're going for. Yeah. You know, it's like being in a band, Yeah, you know, like what's this album going to say? Okay. One other thing I want to tap on before moving on to your next experience in your career. Uh, what is big hospitality? You said that you did big hospitality. How is big hospitality regular from normal size hospitality? Um, <laughs> I, I think it's an extreme position of taking yourself out of the equation. Extreme position of taking yourself out of the equation. So selflessness, putting yeah. everything up. Right. You have guests that are coming into your place. And a lot of people that come to the Thompson house, they right now, they don't, they don't have an expectation. They're like, Oh, we're in the Mount Washington Valley. And you know, they, maybe they haven't experienced, uh, this kind of level of food around here before, and they're not really expecting anything. And then they come in and then we hit them with this awesome dish and really great cocktails and, and we really tell our story at the table when you sit down. Like this is um, Kate and I kind of drawing a line in the sand and saying, we're going to be for our quality of life. We're going to be for quality of food, quality of hospitality, bring the big whole package to everything. So whether it's how the cocktails are, are uh, conceptualized, how we, what we offer, um, the whole package and kind of the theater aspect of it's not just the food, it's the, it's the room. It's, it's everything. Beautiful. Uh, so moving on, eventually you found yourself at Metropolitan Club. What, what created the opportunity there for you to leave such a great restaurant group? Well, I actually had a, I had a spot in between after I had worked at Pignoli and then Lockober and then Excelsior for Lydia, which were all just awesome experiences. Over eight years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and in between two of Lydia's restaurants, I opened this place called the Linwood Grill, which was a Southern, um, barbecue and elevated Southern food kind of, uh, restaurant in the Fenway that was way far ahead of its time. Like we had a whole separate menu with like smoked pheasant and different elevated things like that. You know, Sean Brock is, you know, really famous for bringing back Southern cooking in an elevated way. Like we, they were doing that then. Okay. And so, uh, but after, after leaving Excelsior, I, I did a year with, at this place called Sophia's, which was li- owned by the Lions Group. They own tons of different clubs on Lansdowne Street and all that stuff. And it was a really crazy experience. And it was the first executive chef job that I had at, that, um, you know, I was really in control of the, of the menu. And the Lions Group didn't know what to do at this place. And it was a Latin club with four floors they did live salsa bands in the basement okay. and then a dining room uh which there was no one coming to eat there at all they're just going to drink and then there's like a, a club on top of that and then a rooftop club also there's like five or six hundred people in the building sometimes wow. and it was just this crazy thing and that's kind of where i people started to write about what i was doing um and because of that i event- eventually got to meet with kathy um, who uh, owns the Metropolitan Club, and I kind of got recruited out of there to go work with her and and start that up. And the idea was that we're going to build like five or six of these 
restaurants and I felt like that's what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to go be this like head up this group and do this a little bit more corporate kind of thing, but we were going to take creativity and pair it with commerce and it didn't kind of end up feeling like that for me. So I wasn't there that I was only there. So their vision was not the same as your vision. Is that safe to say like you guys were going in different directions? Yeah, I think so. I think that, and uh, Kathy's great and we still communicate um, every once in a while. And it's, um, she's really brilliant at a lot of things. And um, she had been a movie producer for a long time uh, for like 25 years. And uh, I think that, yeah, the, the translation of what, where art and commerce meet, we used to talk about uh, the translation of what that actually means on a day-to-day basis was different for me than it was for her. And, but I helped put the group, what ended up being a group now of five or six restaurants. Um, I, I think I put them solidly on the path to do that. Um, I won like up and coming chef and some other awards there uh, from like improper Bostonian and things like that. And it just it put me a little bit more on the map so that uh, if I approached an investor, they knew who I was. Okay. So that made 51 Lincoln possible. So was that your intention to align your brand with a brand that you know, if you can make this brand successful and attach your personal brand to it, then you could uh, develop some momentum, some weight when you approached uh, people to invest in what you're trying to do. I, I think overall, yeah, that was that was really kind of the strategy. And I had been looking at spaces before I agreed to go to the Metropolitan Club, but they weren't the right spaces. It wasn't the right investor group. You know, you have to really be careful of kind of who you get in bed with, mm-hmm. you know, because as a, especially as a young chef doing your first restaurant that's yours, you want to completely have creative control. You want to make sure you're able to pay those investors back. There's so much that goes into the politics and dynamics of, you know, having investors and all of that. Some investors think that no matter how busy it is on Saturday night, they get to have a table <laughs> uh, and maybe take a table from someone that had booked it three months ahead of time. And I, that's not, I made it very clear that it's about the guests. <laughs> yeah. It's about taking care of them. Um, I totally appreciate investor putting money into a project. Um, but there's really a strict parameter yeah. to make sure that the guest comes first. I want to put emphasis on this because of how important it is to establish those non-negotiable, non-negotiables from the very beginning and to know what are non-negotiables for you, the things that you need, the the culture you're going to set and the, the people that are all kind of pulling in the right direction. You want to get these people on your team and you have to establish these non-negotiables, these core values. That's so important. So how did you eventually, at what point did you eventually find the people, the right investors, or did you have investors when you opened your first restaurant? Um, Lincoln, uh, was it 21 Lincoln? Sorry. 51 Lincoln. 51 Lincoln. Yeah. So, um, I had a group of people that, um, some came from more restaurant kind of background. One gentleman, um, had a restaurant, was in the real estate business, um, needed some help with his restaurant. So he said, if I consulted, then he would invest in mine. So that was kind of a, he was like the first one on. And then, uh, then we brought in some, some other investors that were, uh, really part of the Boston, 
high tech venture capital scene. Um, so their take on, you know, h- how they would invest and what returns are, were, are very come through a very specific lens. And, uh, it just took a little bit of time to kind of get that set up. And then, then we hit the ground running. What was it from, for somebody who had created such uh, standards for which they would accept money from other people and the non-negotiables that we're talking about, what was it about these people that fit the mold for you? They were very entrepreneurial. Uh, I think that they understood the creative impulse and they knew that in the end of the day, I thought of myself as an artist um, whether I was working in food or, or paint or whatever, uh, I was always going to approach it from that. And they, I felt that they understood that about me and that was really important. Okay. Beautiful. Um, so take us through the, that from 2017 to 2015, uh, two restaurants. Well, first, what were the first lessons with, with the, the first restaurant? Like, what was that like opening oh, your first independent restaurant? Successes, failures, lay it on us. Well, I, in the end of the day, when I look at the global view of, of this 10-year run that we had at 51 Lincoln, uh, we opened four to six months later than we were supposed to because we got held up by the fire department and some other stuff that was, had really nothing to do with us, which ended up costing us a lot of money um, and needing to keep a kitchen team that were coming with me on salary. So for, you took people from the Metropolitan to transition them to 51. I did. Okay, yeah. And, uh, and it was an awesome opening team. And, uh, how did and, that go over taking all those people with you from the Metropolitan? Um, I don't think they were really happy about it. And, uh, I certainly wouldn't have been happy about it uh, either, but I think overall what was going on there, uh, at the time, um, these, this certain group of people, which was only four people, but they were just not, um, they kind of weren't into it. The people that were running the Metropolitan weren't into the business. No, the, uh, the staff that I ended up taking, okay. they didn't want to stay there anyway. Okay. Well then that's so. not on, that's not on the metro, you that's on the Metropolitan. Yeah. And for- I certainly, uh, really try to respect, you know, that aspect and my, you know, my French chefs really were, were adamant that you didn't poach staff. So I was definitely feeling a little bit conflicted about people coming with me. Um, but I also needed people and they really wanted to be with me. So, um, I made the choice to just move forward. Okay. But you know, in the end of the day we opened, uh, with a lot of attention on us because we had a delayed opening and then we kept kind of pushing that. And like I said, everything was built and it was just not getting the final sign offs from the fire department. So this is code like stairways being yeah. enough, uh, enough exits. Yeah. There was a private dining room in this space, uh, that was not really, I don't know if all the paperwork had been done properly to license the downstairs private dining room. So we had to spend the money to put in uh, like fire do- automatic fire doors and, and other safety stuff, uh, which we did. And then the rest of the building that wasn't our space, we were renting one space out of, th- out of three. There was two other spaces in the building. Um, and the fire department pushed th- those people to upgrade their fire alarm systems and connect in with the whole building. Um, and they basically kind of used us as a as leverage 
to so, push that okay. other other gotcha. tenants to upgrade. So no, which is what, something that you don't really think about when you're like a you're like you're yeah. a chef and you're like super nervous about putting all your eggs in one basket and doing this crazy restaurant thing and and then you just kind of feel like you're getting screwed with and whatever. But we did it and because we it was a really uh people were really looking forward to what I was going to do. We got immediately just slammed when it, like how'd you handle I, it? the second day I remember going out in the dining room and there's there was a, two food writers on the second day and I was like you gotta be kidding me and I said <laughs> to this one woman I went right over to her I was like you gotta be kidding me and she's like I just want to eat your food I'm not gonna say anything <laughs> I'm like okay <laughs> you know but it ended up going really well and um uh Boston Magazine, Boston Globe, and Proper Bostonian, I believe, all voted us best new restaurant nice. for the year in Boston. And we weren't in Boston. Yeah, I was going to say, it's the first time it was outside of Boston. It was awesome. I was super psyched. And then... Opened the floodgates after that. For I like bet. a minute. So I have this <laughs> I have this thing that's kind of similar to the... Uh, you know, I always think of Tiger Woods' uh, dad would let him have a, a trophy for a day. He win like the Masters or something. It's like, all right, you <laughs> get that trophy. Next, you get yeah. to look at it for a day. Next yeah. day, next what's goal. next? Yeah. And I have a similar attitude of, all right, what's next? That's that's yeah. good. We it, did that, but that doesn't count anymore. You also said earlier that this was opening this restaurant, Fifty One Lincoln, uh, was the first time you realized it was outside of the 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 purpose was beyond you, and it was about mm-hmm. everybody else. Right, um, the whole team gets something out of it. Was the the quote that you said? So, what situation? What series of events happened to help you transform and to see the industry as from this new perspective? I think it was just you know having a little bit more time in the industry, um, growing as just a, a person and just having more years on the planet, you know, and it being able to really, you know. I'm I'm pretty introspective anyway as an artist of so just trying to figure out, you know, what I need to work on and so getting everyone to be in that mindset helps helps people to um be their best. And that's kind of what I was saying earlier, it, you know, expectations of each person is based on on what that person's ability to uh, improve, like what's their timeline look like, you know, they're eventually going to get to this certain, certain level in all these different tasks or, or how they communicate with other staff. And, and I just see that all the time. So in opening this first restaurant, what was the biggest challenge for you? I think it was finding a front of the house staff that was proficient enough to carry out the vision because I had plenty of back of the house. Yeah. I because was, that's, that, that was your world. That's where you, you brought this team with you. Yeah. In the house. So what, what approach did you take to getting the front of house standards to the, to match the back of house standards? Um, it, it was very difficult. I, I brought in different people that I'd worked with before, um, and just kept overall pushing each person to just bring their best to it. And, and I have to be honest that the front of the house here at Thompson house is 
much more what I pictured a team looking like than at 51. So what'd you do differently between Thompson house and 51? Well, Kate is the, <laughs> Your Kate is, is, is the she, big, oh, there she is. The big thing. Yeah. We're talking so, about you, Kate. <laughs> so, you know, I, I kind of alluded before to, you know, being married before and, you know, I feel like, um, my first wife and I were very, very focused on like success in an achievement sense, like financial achievement, checking boxes, checking boxes going yeah. for it. We both, you know, she went to law school. It was like all the things society third in her, so third in her class at Northeastern <laughs> or whatever, just yeah. really, um, really focused on achievement. Um, but not necessarily, uh, really focused on the, the quality of life stuff, you know, and feeling content and saying, all right, you know, I, I did this. That's awesome. And just savoring it for a second. Uh, so, and, and she was from a more of a corporate law background and that kind of stuff. So um, kind of moving fast forwarding into a spot where I could really focus on, on the food and really get into um, the dynamics of what my food really was. And a lot of people in the beginning, you know, I think my food, when I opened 51, I had a whole set of different dishes that we ended up, a lot of those dishes stayed on the menu for almost 10 years in cycling in and out. And we did all kinds of crazy fun stuff and dinner, wine dinners and all that. But it really wasn't until uh, when I was trying to change menus at 51 in the end that I realized that it was time to really move on because I wanted to do more tasting menus, like more like getting stuff more direct from the farmers, like spending less time manipulating food and more time transforming it. I was really into sh the idea of Chez Panisse and Berkeley and, and like just taking the best tomato and doing this awesome thing with it. Um, that's very simple and straightforward, um, and not getting a lot of stuff in the way. And I think that, um, Kate was really aligned with that. And, and Kate came into the picture in the last few years of 51 Lincoln and was a teacher. So she wasn't really, she wasn't actively working in the restaurant. And then we had our kids who are now uh, three and a half and five and a half. And, you know, the perspective of what was important changed. Mm. So you also opened uh, another restaurant during this time. But we can't just, you know, glance over um, the name. Excuse me. Uh, Wabon, what, say that wrong. Wabin Kitchen. Wabin Kitchen. Wabin Kitchen. Yeah. Uh, so you were running. How do you know you had the bandwidth and it was time to open a second location? Well, the the real question is like why would you want to do that? <laughs> so, yeah, why would you want to? Do so that? my my answer for that stuff is that just in the way that I was taught that you culturally you want to be a celebrity chef, you want to be on TV. Like being yeah. famous is better, you know, which is not true at all. <laughs> and but it takes you a while to figure that why out. Why isn't it true? Because it's not real. Mm. It's not real, you know, and I got a little bit of a taste of that, uh, you know, and I, I always tell the story sometimes where I got to smoke a cigar with Arnold Schwarzenegger, 
you know, at a at a cigar dinner. Okay. There was a different cigar, and it was his restaurant. This place, Shotzi on Main, which I'm not sure if it's still there or not. Um, but they paired a cigar with each dish, and it was. <laughs> It was an awesome experience, oh, cool. but he was just like a normal guy, you yeah. know, and, and everyone's a human being in the end of the day mm-hmm. and, and, uh, the net worth kind of thing, you know, I just, for me, I was always thrown off by fame and money because I grew up poor and I always thought that, that was going to be, that's the goal. That's the goal. Yeah. yeah. And, and then after having a lot more money than I have now, uh, <laughs> it's not, it's not real. And mm-hmm. actually, and being kind of more famous than I am now, I guess, <laughs> um, you know, things ebb and flow and it's just not real. So what Kate and I wanted to accomplish at the time, we were just having our first, uh, first kid. And I felt like, Oh, well to afford our house in Newton and then keep things going, I need to open this other restaurant. And I'd had a catering company also. I was consulting on stuff, you know, I was like running around and I was paying um, a woman to be my personal assistant. And it just was like, Why? and she was telling me where <laughs> to go and I wasn't in charge of myself. And it just felt like what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I catch myself sometimes like up here in the Valley, like oh, I could put a little taqueria in some place and just yeah. crush it, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah. I think one one thing that keeps on coming into my head listening to you speak and um, it's come up a couple of times on the show from different guests and the question you need to ask yourself is are you willing? All these things that we aspire to do that we are uh, told by society that we need to do or we believe we need to do to be successful in the eyes of our peers, are you willing to do all the things you have to do to reach that place? Because if you got to really get a, a real, a realistic idea of what that's going to take. And if you're not willing, there's nothing wrong with you for not being willing to take on all that responsibility. It's a, it's a tough lifestyle. It's not a, there's no, no balance there. Um, like, I know. give a lot of people props. So like, uh, Jamie Bissonette, who was just here doing guest chef thing with us. Uh, you know, he's a, a single guy and now, and he has restaurants in Bangkok, Dubai, New York, Boston, like just, and, and he was, it was really great to have him here. And it, was, it felt like a little bit of old school back in the day, you know, kind of conversations and whatever. But, you know, my hat goes out to those guys that, that are willing to, you're to do always that, on, you're you know? always on. There's not and a day off. My buddy Dante, who is also part of that event has like two or three Il Casales, the Dante, uh, all in the Boston area. And just opened his like sixth restaurant. It's like, are you crazy? Like <laughs> why, why do that? So, so our thing when we're coming here, you know, Kate said to me specifically, you have to be happy cooking what you're cooking. You're going to do the menu that you want to do. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And this is like, this is a big statement when you think about like basically selling two restaurants and a house and moving two children, you know, three hours away with two 18 wheeler trucks, one with restaurant equipment from 51 Lincoln ovens, (laughs) the whole thing and all the house stuff and then renovating the farmhouse that we live in now we actually had a family donate a condo for two and a half, three months wow. across the street because they wanted to see Thompson house reopen. 
and they let us live there for free while we were renovating the farmhouse. So, you know, there was a lot of things that came together to make it possible. But in the end of the day, I wanted Kate to be in the front of the house and I wanted the kids to be on property because working 80 hours a week in a building that was only two miles away from our old restaurant, it still might as well have been a hundred miles away. Yeah. It doesn't matter. So we came here to do something really real and not compromise what is, at all. What is really real? There's no, there's no artifice. There's no, we get great ingredients and we cook them well and we treat people really well when they're coming here. They're coming to your home. It is our home. And I always talked about the dining room at 51 Lincoln being the cathedral, right? The, the revered, revered space that something great was going to happen in. And it didn't happen on every table <laughs> and it didn't happen every day, but we did pull it off a lot, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, and that's the thing is like, you're, it's all about averages, you know, like how many, all right. So if you serve 150 guests and each guest has four courses or three courses. Each time their their plate was cleared, were they reset with fresh silverware before the next course came? Maybe not. And how many times <laughs> does that have to happen? Six hundred courses, so it's, it's hard to get right every time. And it, we miss two or three times out of a busy Saturday. Mm-hmm. So it's not and that sucks when that yeah. happens. And, and but some people are like. Why are you taking my fork? That's my fork. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how's this different today? How is this more real than that? It's, it's, it's all... It's the, is it more authentic to who you are? Is that what makes it more real? Yeah, I think so. But I, I think, uh, you know, I'm a college dropout. But, you know, I, I use my fancy gestalt word <laughs> sometimes to talk about the, the uh, whole being greater than the sum of its parts. So I think about that a lot. So what ends up happening with me is that, well, if, if Kate's really happy, um, you know, being the point of contact in the front and really telling the story and then Megan, our GM, you know, going in line with that and, and really feeling like there's someone in the front that's representing me and my food and the team's food and the whole property, it, it ends up letting me relax and just cook. And then also knowing that I'm going to go outside and pick vegetables that we grow, which 80% of the menu for four months of the year is from the property. Wow. That's a whole other thing. We had a roof deck at 51 Lincoln that, or the, the whole roof was a garden in containers that was a total pain in the ass to take care of. And, but we still had over 200 tomato plants. Wow. So we have a lot of things kind of working in unison that make it a happy place for people to be and work. And with your first two restaurants, did you have partners like you have partners today? Like, like in that partner that you have in Kate, as far as somebody who just bears that load of the front of house where you don't even have, it's like off your table. This is the first time that I really had it in a way that works. Uh-huh. And, and, and Kate's just fantastic with, with, with the guests and how 
you know, she, there's a big light about her and people are really attracted to wanting to like chat with her and, uh, and she, we really believe what we're talking about too. <laughs> so it's yeah. Not- so what is it exactly about what this situation is that makes it, what is it about how Kate and you interact that makes it that much better? What does that relationship look like? I mean, obviously there's a connection there. She's your wife, but from a business standpoint, how does that relationship look? Well, I think that we make sure that we're okay first as a couple. We, we date once a week <laughs> and we, and next, uh, you know, how are the kids, are they happy? And then, and then we really look at the business and, you know, for us, you know, obviously in the, in the beginning, it was all about the business and doing the construction and like getting ready. Um, but now it's, it's about really recognizing how much business do we want? So we do a four day a week schedule, uh, which I don't know any other restaurant that really does that. That's functioning at a high level. Like we are from a quality and hospitality standpoint of, you know, food and hospitality. We started out doing a five day schedule and then adding a sixth day when it's a long weekend. And we made the choice uh, last year to go to the schedule where we have a Tuesday management team day where we do chores, we can work on the property, we can write menus, um, we can do interviews and things like this. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then we do service four days a week. And we're finding that people are supporting us in that and our revenue is up um, about 20, 22% over last year which is our first year. So you have to expect there should be a substantial increase, but I'm actually kind of surprised that it was at that level. And, and now we're just kind of looking at what's next and how do we kind of solidify, you know, our plan and what's next. We're sitting right now next to a back deck, which has a a canopy over it that kind of creates an outside room. What our, our plan, depending on whether we can raise the money or not for it, is to build it into a year-round greenhouse where we can grow year-round, but there's a chef's table as the center of that room. So if you want to come and do a tasting menu and, and be around the plants and all of that, That's cool. it's kind of the next it's the next idea. So you have, you're open for service uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Is that what it is? And you have Sunday, yep. Monday, Tuesday off or Tuesday to do things that need to get done around the yeah. the facility. Um, what's the quality of life? How, how are your people? What's the energy of your people versus other experiences when you're on seven days a week? Well, I think that we, I, there's a sense of being in the Mount Washington Valley. There's a sense of like, you know, I, a lot of people are like, it's a powder day. I'm not working. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I just learned to ski this past winter and I understand why they say that uh, now. And so, you know, Kate and I just keep trying to build things into as we get into each successive season uh, from like our second summer, we were able to kind of, kind of really have a better perspective of how crazy busy it was going to be and how to kind of survive it, you know? Yeah. And then knowing that we're going to have a little bit of break in November, we'll close for a week and then, you know, we're going to be able to go start skiing and, and everyone will ski together. And, 
you know, and we just kind of plan things to do with the staff or end up kind of being more of our friends and our family. Yeah. I think the biggest thing I'm pulling from our conversation today is just the idea of quality of life and not chasing all the things that society tells us we need to be chasing, but really just chase happiness, right? And creating a situation, really being proactive where you can create a situation that's ideal for you and what, you, what really matters to you and what really matters to you today after all this time in the industry, uh, becoming successful, winning, checking those boxes, like what matters for you today after all that? It still comes down to the quality of the cooking experience. And, um, and now one of the major things is to make sure I take care of my body. I'm a, I'm a 50 year old line cook basically. (laughs) So, and I've been doing it since I was pretty much like 18 and, it's, you know, how does it all fit together? And, and what's the, I keep saying, what's the right amount of business to do? You know, you know, we pretty much cap our, our covers at 150 guests. We don't want to cook for any more people than 150 people. And per, why is that the night. right amount for you? What can you accomplish at 150 guests? Uh, we can just do a, a much higher quality uh, with the, we have a really nice large kitchen that we can kind of spread out in, which is not something I ever had before. And, uh, you know, it's just really, it's a quality component. It's like the kitchen is the bottleneck, you know, like you can put in, you know, 30 people worth of orders in five minutes. That doesn't mean they're going to come out (laughs) in, you know, all at the same time. So, you know, the realities of knowing how many people you're seating at a time, and saying, no, we turn away 50 to 100 people a day in the busy season. And so what's important in the end of the day is feeling like, you know, I can survive physically and, and not just survive, but really feel good about being on the line and cooking and then getting downtime with the kids and having them really not be pissed off that the, our family is in the restaurant business, mm. you know, cause that's a real, that's really important to make sure that they're okay. And then to make sure that I'm getting off property because living in the farmhouse and being like my commute with my cup of coffee into the office from our house kitchen and then into the big kitchen is 30 yards. <laughs> so, uh, and I love being in that big kitchen. It, it definitely made the space my own. I really love the team. Um, but there's going to be other things. Like right now, um, you know, we're playing a lot of music with the staff. We have a very musical team. So I'm really getting much better on guitar and putting effort into that. You're, you're creating a family. You know, it's not just coming into work yeah. and pumping the, punching the clock. It's it's creating community and relationships around you. And like, that's what matters, right? It's the relationships. It's the quality, right? Not just of the food, but of the relationships and the, the, the people you're surrounding yourself with. And enjoying the culture of the area, you know, like um, skiing is one thing. We live also on uh, Jackson Ski Touring. There's 100 miles of cross-country trails that start at our property. Man. Awesome. It's really cool. Like you can just go strap skis on and just, and we, they use some of our land. So, um, we had to part, kind of participate with them. And then, um, this month I'm working on doing a hunter, 
uh, education and safety nice. class so I can go do some bird hunting. There you go. And uh, which I've never, I've always wanted to do. And <laughs> yeah, I, you should go hunting with my dad. He's always looking for somebody down. He's he's mad at me because I'm too busy with the podcast. He's like, when are you gonna go? I'm like, I gotta go drive up north. I feel it bad. I should hunt more with him. But uh, <laughs> I just never have had the chance to do that. And then um, and then getting back in, I was a Boy Scout and I fished and you know and coming up here, um, fly fishing and that kind of stuff when I was young like, you know, 14, 15 years old. Um, so now I'm trying to capitalize each season on, all right, well, how many stripers can I catch in the summer? <laughs> and uh, what really matters, right? <laughs> you now just trying to do things that are active and they're outside of the property um, and things that, you know, that, you know, Kate wants to do and they're good for the kids to do together. Um, and just trying to, I don't just find the good stuff. I dig it. Awesome stuff. Anything we haven't discussed, anything you want to get out on the table uh, and leave behind before moving to the speed round. I've I've loved this conversation, by the way. Thank you. Um, No, it's been great. I, I think that my overall take on the restaurant business is if you don't like it, get the fuck out of it. (laughs) Like (laughs) I'm, I really don't swear that often, but this is a statement that I feel like if you're a young person and you're really feeling like the restaurant industry is like beating on you, uh, in a way that you're not getting anything back from it, then, then you should be finding a place where that's like us, like go to a small independent place where you can have a big impact and be a big part of a family and a team that wants to do something great. Yes, And that's how you're going to feel like it's worth it. And if you don't, and if you're in a place like that and you still don't feel like it's worth it, go be an investment banker or something. Don't waste your time. Chef, you've been awesome. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. If you listen to Restaurant Unstoppable, I'm sure you've heard me say it before, but I'll say it again. There are two things that you need to let determine your growth. The first thing, that's people. The second thing, that's cash flow. And we've got you covered on the cash flow part of things because I'm working with cashflowtool.com, the ultimate cloud-based solution for your business. Cashflowtool.com is simple, powerful, and predictive. It's simple because it requires no data entry. It's always up to date and it works on any device, anywhere. It's powerful because with its built-in cash flow calendar, activity feed, and anomaly detector, you instantly know all aspects of your cash flow with no surprises. And it's predictive because you know your cash flow today and you can anticipate it tomorrow. Head over to www.cashflowtool.com slash unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and you'll receive pro features at the essential features price. All right, I have a question for you. How can an anonymous employee reporting program be a profit center for your restaurant? Hmm. Well, for starters, fraud alone represents a staggering loss to the restaurant industry with an estimated $40 billion in losses in the U.S. in 2017 alone. And this does not include the losses and costs associated with the more than 540,000 calls made to the U.S. EEOC in 2017, resulting in millions of dollars in penalties and legal costs for restaurant owners and investigators related to claims of harassment and discrimination. So do I have your attention? Good, because there's more. 
employee tip-offs about misconduct continue to be the most common method for detection and prevention, but employees are often deterred from reporting their concerns directly to supervisors because they're afraid that there's going to be retaliation or they might lose their job or something, and I get it. But with Ethics Suites Anonymous and web-based restaurantethics.com, you can provide a safe, secure, simple, and anonymous communication channel between you and your employees to help protect your hard-earned reputation and assets. Go to ethicssuites.com slash restaurants unstoppable and you will get three additional months so for the cost of 12 months you'll get 15 months or head over to the show notes and find the banner and you can use the link there (laughs) we're back and the first question i have for you is what is your it factor habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success attention to detail and care Mm, what is your biggest paying attention my biggest weakness Uh, I want to say taking things per- too personally. Mm. How are you dealing Getting with that? Getting mad uh, about things that maybe I take out of context. Okay. How yes. are you dealing with that? I try to take a deep breath and and don't say the first thing that I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? How are you growing that team? The biggest question I'd probably ask about, particularly in a, like a job interview kind of environment, is, you know, what do you want out of this? What are you looking for? I want I want to see someone that wants to create something bigger than themselves, because that's how I kind of got into it in the first place. I guess I wanted to be part of something uh, that I really felt like it was worth my time on the planet. And particularly in, in a time, modern time where people jump back and forth between different careers and, and maybe don't really kind of hone a craft, you know, it's more about like, how am I going to make this money so I can get these things? You know, I want someone that I want people around me that care more about the ethereal things that fit in between the paychecks and, and everything else. I love it. What is your biggest challenge today? Finding ingredients. Mm, how are you dealing with that? It's uh, I'm creating a lot of different relationships with foragers, with farmers. Uh, I want the good stuff. Yeah. You, I, you've only been up here for two years now. Uh, for- we moved up here two years ago this month and we have been open. It'll be two years this February. But I feel like a lot of that stuff comes with time and developing the relationships, right? It does, but it also is educating uh, distributors and purveyors on ingredients that I feel like maybe they should already know about. Mm. Okay. And which is probably one of the challenges that you face moving out of a city like Boston where the, just the infrastructure is there to support, any demand, anything that people want. Yeah. Like Boston and New York are are bigger hubs uh, that will have um, more of higher quality ingredients and a more varied amount. How messed up is that, that you have to go into the city to get higher quality ingredients where you think that the country would have the higher quality because you're so close to the source. Um, Do you really want to open the conversation about (laughs) about, about food chain and uh, all that? Maybe another day. Well, that's the problem is that, you know, instead of we've centralized our food production in a way that doesn't make any sense. And to get the good stuff, you just have to kind of know the right people, you know, and 
and you also have to know the difference between like what what quality you're looking for. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. Just respect. Be nice. <laughs> be nice. Like don't uh have to be the guy that has the last word all the time. You know, take yourself out of the equation is something I kind of think about and talk about a lot. It's like, you know, when when someone's giving you know, anybody a critique on needing to do something better. It's not because we're putting them down. It's because we want the restaurant to be the best it can be. And we want the guests to have the best experience. I think letting it be known that when you do offer criticism and you do offer suggestive help, uh, it's not breaking them down, but it's making the team better. And when you communicate that that's a core value, that's what we're here to do. And you make that be known that it can just have a huge impact on your culture. Yeah. And it's, it's a real, it's a real challenge with, with certain people. They have, they can't get past to make it personal. Well, like like, you I, say, like, like don't make it I'm personal. showing up. It's like, well, there are no free trophies, man. Yeah. Like <laughs> we don't do that. Yeah. I, I, I'm a, I'm a pre free trophy guy. <laughs> Got you. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's common within these four walls, but not common within the industry. I think that, one of the main things is we don't have customers. We have guests and it takes every team member that is not used to that culture to come in and it takes them a month and they keep saying customer and they keep using the word customer. And the difference between a customer and a guest is that the guest is in your house. And for Kate and I, this is our house. (laughs) So, and you can also ask a guest to leave. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that, that's tempting. Uh, when do you know it's time to ask a guest to leave? Uh, if they are disrespectful to staff member, if they um, really don't understand what what we are and and are not behaving within a social yeah. norm, and you know we have we've it's been a very very few people have come in here and and have maybe been, wow, what's going on here? This is not what I'm used to. And they're being so nice. And, and then people freak out and they can't <laughs> yeah. handle it. You know? It's like the, the relationship they, goes beyond the transaction, right? Yeah. And they start to have the conversation at the table, how they're writing the Yelp <laughs> review <laughs> as they're at the table. <laughs> and, and we will handle those kind of situations the best we can, knowing that, you know, we're here to like give show people a really good time, you yeah. know, and do really great food. And if someone's being really insulting about what we're spending so much time trying to perfect every day, every table, then they shouldn't be in the building. I love it. Awesome stuff, man. Uh, what is one book that's going to make us a better person or a restaurant operator? So I'm going to pronounce um, the name wrong, but Sirio uh, Masiani. Okay. Uh, who was, is the, I think, I'm not sure if he's still alive actually, but he owned Le Cirque in New York. And I first became interested in him because uh, my old chef, Daniele Baliani worked at Le Cirque under Daniel Boulud. And we talked about that a little bit before. So I always felt like there was a little connection and um, kind of food stuff carrying over from Daniele to me. 
um, and from Genio Balud, which I just like the idea <laughs> of that because um, I really respect what he's accomplished as a career. And uh, But Serio wrote this book that is his life in service, basically, and coming from the old school, like hotel school experience. Um, a lot of people maybe don't, don't know what that is, but when you're a young, you know, basically front of the house person, you could apprentice like being a chef, but in the front of the house in hotels and on cruise ships and, you know, in the probably forties and fifties when, when service standards were really high as opulent service. And there's a, that book goes into what's important about taking care of the guests, but also having your, you, as a restaurant person, being okay with yourself as well and making sure that you're taken care of too. What's the title of that book one more time? It's, I think it's called My Life at Le Cirque. Okay. I have to look it it's up. It's the first time it's mentioned on the show. I'm really interested in that. It sounds great. I really loved it. I hope it's on audio. <laughs> <laughs> one audio good, good for driving yeah, yeah exactly uh is there one tool or resource you wish you had now or you wish you had when you're getting started that you have now that would have had a, a big impact something that you would wish you knew of or had then that you have now i wish someone that had my mindset now had come to me and said don't worry about if your name's in the paper <laughs> don't you don't have to get up and and cook a dish on live TV at seven in the morning on Fox or whatever <laughs> uh, to be a good chef I like it. and be a good restaurant person and a business person. I hope that, that this is that resource, you know, and that's really kind of the, the, the mission of this podcast is to share this knowledge, to make this knowledge available to everybody. I think we can transform the industry if we do make that knowledge available. I love that idea. I love it being really about, about the people, mm. you know, the staff, the guests, the, the wine purveyors, like, you know, it takes a lot of different people for, to work together to make sure that, you know, table one Oh five has a great experience mm. from seven <laughs> o'clock to nine o'clock right. <laughs> on Saturday night. I love it, man. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Not open restaurants. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is one piece of technology you've adopted within your four walls that's had a huge impact on operations, profitability, efficiency, things of that nature? I, the best thing that I've ever done in this in the, at Thompson House is I created a one-page spreadsheet that is a snapshot of the whole business every day. Hmm. So. You know, I certainly, I use QuickBooks and all that to ma manage my checks and like clearing checks and all that kind of stuff. But I do the books myself. You know, uh, I have an accountant that, that I've worked with for 12 years that does my annual stuff and whatever. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I have this spreadsheet that basically is either telling me what sales I did that day or projecting what I'm going to do the next day. Um, and then all of my outstanding liabilities every day and um, planning it out. And I look at it twice a day and it keeps me really in touch with exactly what's happening. Is there, um, 
a platform you built? Is this just a regular Excel? It's just a regular Excel spreadsheet. But the way that it with works. QuickBooks and stuff? Does it, does it draw? I go back and forth between taking information from QuickBooks and, you know, clearing checks out of it and things like that. So, you know, restaurants being talking about profitability, there's a difference between profitability and cash flow and cash position and all that kind of stuff. And I've learned a lot after doing it for this long uh, that just having your finger on the pulse of exactly what's coming in and going out allows you to relax. Yeah. As long as, you know, there are certainly weeks where so I, wish it was, a, I wish it was going better. It sounds kind of like a cash flow tool. Yeah. It's, 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 I call it the cash flow spreadsheet. And yeah. then, and the other thing that we did is we created what we call the universe and it, it's the, because our name is, you know, Thomas and Eatery where T-H-E, we're the, <laughs> so it's the universe and it's basically every single shift of the year laid out wow. and projecting what we're going to do for that day, that week and looking at making sure that we can survive uh, on our and be profitable on our fa- five, four day schedule that turns into a five day schedule over the summer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that just really gives us a real great picture of like when we need to staff up, you know, uh, when we're going to be making sure that, you know, maybe we're a little bit slower, but we're going to keep people employed year round by having them help break down the irrigation system. Yeah. On we the were farm. talking earlier about toast, which is the POS you use. Can't you get projections in a format that's easy to read straight from that platform? We can, we can do that. I mean, I, the the spreadsheet thing is a little bit more old school okay. and and it I trust it at this point. <laughs> I got you. Awesome stuff. Uh this is the last question. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? Sure. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your restaurants, and your work would be gone with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Three truths. I would say have fun or enjoy yourself because if you're not having fun, it's just work. That would be like the first one. Um, Do your best. Push yourself to do your best even when you're tired. And, And the third one I would say take time to recharge and gain perspective. Like global perspective is really important. We talk about it a lot here and it's, it's really easy to go down the tunnel and just, and just be like stressing on something that you shouldn't be stressing about. They won't hear that. (laughs) Awesome. This has been a great conversation, man. I've loved every second of this and Man, just tons of value today. Uh, we wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who's one independent operator? Somebody you admire, uh, I believe would make a great guest mentor in the show like you've made for us today. I think that, uh, I think Dante Demistris, who, who I kind of mentioned earlier, who has Dante and Il Casale, and he just opened a new restaurant called Wellington in Belmont. Okay. Uh, I think he'd be a really nice choice. He's, uh, 
He's very shy, <laughs> but very knowledgeable, trained in Milan. He comes from an Italian family, and he, he's, uh, he needs to stop opening restaurants probably. He has too many. But um, he'd be a great person to kind of pin down. Beautiful. And uh, let the folks at home know how we can connect with you if we want to maybe come join your team or just come experience your food or maybe ask questions based off of today's conversation. What's the best way to connect? Well, you we can start with our with our website at uh, thethompsonhouseeatery.com. Uh, we have, uh, I feel like, a pretty strong Instagram presence um, at Thompson House Eatery. And other than that, just call us. Yes. You know, come by. I, I love having people come and stodge in the kitchen. I always did that. And uh, one thing we didn't really kind of touch on was that I did teach at BU as yeah, well for right. 10 years. Uh, with Jacques Pepin was a mentor of mine, and uh, and I still think very fondly of everything that I got to experience being at BU for ten years and all the people I met and all that. But um, teaching is is really important. So if there are any young cooks out there that want to come spend a day and just hang out with us, beautiful, come do that. Awesome. This is episode four. Sorry, five. 48. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 548. I'll have a, a summary of today's discussion over there as well as the links to the tools and services recommended. And again, Chef, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Cheers. We'll cut it. <laughs> yes, Chef Jeffrey Fournier. Man, what a great conversation today. Uh, where do we even begin with a conversation like that? I think the overarching theme is present. It stands out. That is, don't chase money and accolades and press. Like, that's not what will make you happy. And when you get those things, uh, the money, the accolades, you become used to it you acclimate to that that quality of life that attention and you no longer get happiness from getting that type of attention from getting the money what really will make you happy is relationships and the quality of life the the quality of relationships you have with people and i love how he shared this idea of uh, like the the real the moment he really grew when he was when he got out of the metropolitan and he realized that uh Success doesn't come when you put the focus on the chef and you make it a chef-driven restaurant, but when you put the focus on the team, on everyone, and you you make sure that you you take care of your people and that you share the accolades and you share the attention and you live to serve. And like you said, big hospitality. I asked, what's what is big hospitality? And we distilled it down to selflessness, right? Uh, putting everyone else's needs in front of your own uh that's caring that's that's hospitality that's warmth right there uh awesome stuff today also some really great advice on just how to uh live intentionally and don't just take a job anywhere but do your research and 
get on the right teams and surround yourself with the best. I say it all the time, and I'll say it again. You are the average of those you surround yourself with, and I think that Chef Fournier is living proof of that awesome stuff today. All right, guys, like always, please do reach out to me, Eric, at restaurantunstoppable.com, Instagram, Twitter, Eric Cacciatore, Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me how I can best serve you. Keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. They help so much. I'm also on Spotify now and Google Play. If those are your jams, you can find me over there. Uh, And the best way to support this podcast is by sharing it. I really want to make Restaurant Unstoppable into a community, a community of people who want to share best practices, who who want to share best values, and to bring these people together and to create a platform of just amazing people sharing knowledge. That's the vision for Restaurant Unstoppable, and the only way we can do that is if people know about it. So share this sucker. Let's take it to the next level. All right, guys, that's all for today. Thanks for sticking around this long. I love you all. Until next time, peace out.